Hey, welcome to the Bullpen Session. This is Patrick Lillis, and I am excited to share with you my conversation with Nicole Brewer. Nicole is a, a director. Uh, he lives in Washington, D.C., and also an, an advocate, an activist. Uh, she does something called uh, that she focuses on called anti-racist theater. I met her, and we had this conversation at the Southeast Theater Conference. This is the fifth of those conversations that happened, and... She was there, they were doing, I'm going to get the phrase wrong, but the SCTC this year was beginning to put a primary focus on equity, inclusion, and diversity, and trying to look at how to expand their programming, but I also think how to address the issue of inclusivity. And interesting, I'm really excited to share the conversation with you, because while it was happening at SCTC, I, I, it was, I will share that I, I remember in the middle of the interview getting uncomfortable, because I thought, oh, I want to... I want to bring it back to the early career artist. I want to figure out what the advice is. How do we get them to begin a career? And re-listening, because the conversation went to really deep, profound, systemic issues around race and inclusivity. And, you know, the truth is, I was thinking in the middle of the conversation, like, oh, I'm, an, I'm not an expert at this. I'm an expert at um, cultivating early career artists. And... I found myself having a conversation that is vitally important. And I didn't, you know, I want to, part of me was like, oh, I, you know, I'm not sure this is what the bullpen session audience is. I'm not sure if that's the mission of the, and, and the truth is I wasn't sure I was doing it right. And re-listening it to it today, I, I, I think what's really important is to share it. Because whether I was doing it or it doesn't matter, it's the fact that we need to address these issues. And I'm not going to say the conversation was important. You'll hear this great thing that Nicole pointed out to me, that conversation is not important. It's results that are important. And I thought that was profound because I think we pat ourselves on the back a lot when we talk about, you know, what we're talking about that. There's an awareness of that. And, you know, awareness is great, but after awareness, you need action. And and I also think it's a really good conversation to have because we're all talking about we don't know what's going to be next. You know, when is the pandemic over? When will we go back to normal? Will we ever have a play where there's 800 people sitting in an audience next to each other? Will, I, will we only do one or two person shows for a little while? You know, will Zoom be the new thing for play development? We don't all have to be in the same room. All that stuff that we're looking at of like, what is theater and how is it going to work? And I have total faith that it's going to come back eventually, you know, and it's been around since the Greeks and there's been dark ages and viruses and pandemics and will last. But when we're looking at how we're going to do it differently in the future, this idea of inclusion, you know, the conversation with Christine, uh, artists with disabilities and, um, and racial inequality and systemic issues that go around that is like, okay, how are we going to be fully inclusive? And not how are we going to do what we've been doing, but do that better, you know? But how are we going to do it differently? And I think this is an opportunity because we know that we're not going to go back to normal for, you know, for a couple of months, right? It's not going to be, might be longer. It's probably going to be longer, but I don't want to think about that. But in this time of inclusive, uh, of thinking about how, what the new normal is and what we're going to do and what changes we're going to implement, let's think about dressing the issue of being inclusive. You know, when we talk about online learning, you know, all of a sudden there's issues that come into who has time, who has internet, who has how many laptops and how many houses and, you know, the economical 
inclusivity. And I'm thinking, right, we got to think about that. And who's doing the teaching? How are we doing the teaching? How do people interact? And I just do say, it, it seems like, you know, it's interesting. I, I did this conversation two and a half months ago at SCTC, and it probably would have been released if the world didn't get turned upside down, you know, in the middle of March. But this conversation did not seem like it would have gotten the attention that it needed uh, if we had dropped it then, because I don't think people were ready to listen. I think they wanted to hear a conversation about like, you know, how a playwright builds a career, but not not really, actually. I, I think they wanted to hear like, when do I get to go back to work? And, you know, now that we but this seems like the right time and it seems appropriate that it is the final of the fifth SCTC conversations to share with you. And it feels like the right time to share this conversation because as the world is uh, on this pause and we are evaluating our values and what's important to us and, and how we're going to move forward, this is the conversation with Nicole wants to be in the forefront of how we think about how we move forward. And um, I was really grateful to have it and I'm grateful to the SCTC and, you know, I hope you enjoy it as well. And with that, play ball. executive director reached out to me. And so I think last year there was a need around um, addressing issues around equity, diversity, and inclusion and access, um, and that the constituents here wanted more of that. So yeah, I was contacted and asked if I would come. And, and did they, and uh, I, were you paneling? Were you workshopping yeah. what were you doing workshops workshops no panels for me um so my workshop was on anti-racist theater practices right um and so i did two workshops on that and i was really i was actually yeah i was interested and i saw it and i was like first thing i saw was the art workshop and then i read what the art workshop was and what what inspired the work i mean it's funny to say that because we had just talked about uh I just talked to Christine earlier about the idea of embracing your story and your who you are mm -hmm. in your work and every day. So it seems almost silly to say what inspired the work, but to become an advocate and to become somebody, what what did cause that? What what inspired the work for you? Yeah, um, I would say what inspired my work was racism and not being able to get work. So. Um, I thought if I got degrees, so I have a BFA and an MFA in acting, that that would be what I needed to like be successful in the theater and to be able to work. And like the training taught me that I could play any role or any character. Like all of the scenes and the scripts that I was given in my graduate program were like me stepping into white characters. And but the reality of that was when I got into professional theater or got back into professional theater, I should say, um, I wasn't being asked to come to those auditions. I wasn't being looked at for, you know, traditionally white roles. Um, I was just asked to come to, you know, the shows, another mounting of Raisin in the Sun or uh, an August Wilson play, right? And so my training had taught me to be white. So my sound had been erased. My um, cultural understanding of my body had been erased. And I had to reintroduce myself to um, all of the things that made me who I was culturally um, to be able to then do the auditions for these quote-unquote black shows, um, which are also not black shows, they're just plays, right? But yeah, um, 
yeah, so that, that's kind of what brought me to this. I love telling stories. I love theater. I love the magic of theater. Uh, I didn't want to give up on the career. I wanted to find or vision pathways where my cultural context was relevant and necessary and needed. And so that kind of birthed the pathway to anti-racist theater for me. And you say anti-racist. Uh, when you say anti-racist theater, I'm just the work about it or the advocacy around it? Because I don't know, what, all of a sudden when I heard it, I went, I hope, what is anti-racist theater? Yeah. No, I'm doing the work to make it a thing. So, okay. so that, yeah, people won't have to ask that question, right? But basically what the three values around anti-racist theater are, right, are harm reduction, harm prevention, and relationship repair. So I'm looking like, how does that show up in the theater industrial complex, both in the education systems and in the professional systems? How are we operating? How am I operating from these values? And with an anti-racist um, ethos, right? Anti-racist theater ethos that I have, that allows me to recognize that everything is racist in the theater industrial complex. And that has to be countered with anti-racism because there's no such thing as non-racist. Very quickly and very concisely makes sense to me, yeah. and I was, it, it's interesting because when you say it, just the idea of the training of yeah, most of the canon and what people are training is to like it's, it's white, mm -hmm. right? And just the idea that you're and and being invited into when you go out into the working world, not being invited as open as broadly as who would be in a tr school. Um, because in school they want to include everybody, right? So they're, they're thinking of it that way. And I do think it's fascinating for me to think about because I'm going, right, it, it's not only just creating opportunities. Like obviously there's more, there's more playwrights than August Wilson and Raising His Son today, mm -hmm. right? Dominique Marisol and there's Tory Hall and there's people that are writing plays mm -hmm. and that are starting to get produced, but it doesn't change the, the the experience that you're talking about it doesn't change the systemic thing about training and it doesn't talk about opportunities when the door opens. So I was curious, I, I was, I think it's, I have a couple of friends who talk about the, I have a very good actor friend, uh, Russell Jones, who started a thing called Blind Spot to get conversations together just so different people of different races would talk about their blind spots and identifying it. And I thought it was really interesting when I was reading, you know, American Theatre Magazine, your article, and just of, oh, how do you then just, how can you break it down? Mm -hmm. Because it seems, the, the College Collaboration Project I was just talking about before we went on, one of my challenges is we go to schools that are not in New York, Chicago, DC, not in new place centers, you know, more Furman University or, or Center College in Kentucky, and, and it's interesting because the diversity of students is not as strong. You know, there's not as much diversity in the campuses. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to figure out how to bring non-white writers mm -hmm. to the campus to write for the student body that may not be fully represented yet. So I'm interested in, I was, I'm interested in the work that you're doing because I think the thing about the industrial complex is a great way to phrase it. Theater, is that right? Theater industrial complex. Yeah. And I think, yeah, because it's, it's a whole system mm -hmm. that's there. I don't know if I have anything smart to say. I'm just going to say I'm interested in it because okay. I think it's a challenge to take on the training and I um, and figure out how to embody it so that people feel 
complete and comfortable to be able to be themselves when they go out to work. Because I think, yes, it's all storytelling, but that's what we want to do, mm -hmm. is we want to bring ourselves to the work. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, were you, I'm going to back up a little bit because I may be too deep for how I can, where I can go with it. Um, but you're living in, where did you go to get your, where did you go to grad school? Or, or my real question is, how did you end up in Washington? All right. Um, I, I am born and raised in California, and um, I've run it very desperately to go to NYU. And it was, you know, I was a headstrong 16 year old because I did early admission. And, my, and that was the only place I was going to apply. And my mother was like, you may not. <laughs> so I could only like, I could only go to the audition in New York if I applied to another college. And so the college that I applied for was Howard University. And uh, I did not get in to NYU, so they did me a favor. And um, I say that because the experience that I had at a historic black college and one that within that kind of ridiculous hierarchy of historic black colleges is considered the Mecca, was that I had, for the first time in my life, the opportunity to just be Nicole. I wasn't a token black face or body or woman. I got um, the experience of my history being normalized and being told in a way where I could process um, both, yes, greatness, but also like where we've got work to do. And the, the black diaspora that was represented on the campus at that time was just magnificent, right? So to be able to hear the Caribbean accents and to see the people from the different countries on the continent of Africa and like to then also see black people from Delaware or, or Rhode Island and be like, y'all live there, right? Um, and to be able to be um, just there and to sing the national um, you know, black anthem at football games and to listen to all the music and the sororities and fraternities is such an incredible gift. So that's how I ended up in Washington, DC. And then I went back home uh, to California after I graduated and I spent a few years in California working in the professional theater scene um, there in the Bay Area specifically. Uh, but I realized I had a problem with my acting, which was like I couldn't consistently replicate um, characters like one night would be really good another night would be like really shitty and I kind of just realized oh there's holes in my process and I needed more um, so I ended up using Erda's to apply for graduate schools and um, I had to do two rounds of that like the first year I just bombed my audition <laughs> and then the second time I had like eight interviews and then I ended up with like four offers and I chose to go to uh, Northern Illinois University and get my master's degree from there, which was um, a horrendous experience. It was quite horrible. And um, I knew people from Howard who had gone to graduate school before I did. And some of their insights, so I also got into UCLA. And um, my former classmates from Howard who were going through the program at UCLA at the time, uh, and this is 20 years ago, right, um, were saying how racist it was. And that if I got into any other place, I should like strongly consider going, right? Um, and so I remember talking to the head of the NIU program about like, I'm not there to be your token black person, you know? And I'm, I'm there to get this education. And I was like really transparent and honest and I felt like I was being radical in these conversations. And they gave me the offer and I went and I thought, okay, I've protected myself. And the opposite was true. It was like out of a class of 16, 14 were 14 shades of white. There was one person who was Nigerian, and then there was me. Um, 
and that was it. My faculty was also uh, largely white, and I'm here in the corn, and it was just a, an emotionally taxing and exhausting experience. And because I had Howard as my background, right, I would be sitting in, let's say, my history class of theater history, and I'd say, oh, you know, uh, actually, there's more that happened during this time frame, right? And I had to keep doing that. And essentially, by me continuing to be like, hey, it's a larger story, it's a more expansive story, I got labeled as rebellious. They literally told me I was unteachable. Um, in my third year, I was kicked out of my program. So, like, I came back in August, and by September, they said, you have to leave, you're immature. And it was a three-year program, right? So they take people every three years. The one really great thing about going to Howard <laughs> University is that you never throw away any paper. <laughs> and so I had all of my evaluations, right? And all of my evaluations never said such a thing. Uh, I never earned higher than an A in those classes, but that's another deal right. with like, you know, the racism that I was experiencing. But I never earned less than a B. So I had a B in all of my classes. And so I had to take the, court, the, the case to the, the graduate school and say, well, here's all this documentation. And two years I've completed, I've never earned less than a B, right? They've never in any of their evaluations written that I was unteachable or all these things. And so it was overturned and I was allowed to continue, but the teachers were. Um, but then you got to continue somewhere where you don't feel yeah. like you're welcome. I wasn't welcome, right? right? Like they stopped giving me critiques. Um, my white classmates turned against me, so I was made a pariah. Right, so it was really isolated um, in that situation. And so when I graduated, literally the same day that the ceremony happened, I was in a U-Haul back to DC. And I thought, I just have to go back to safe space. And DC, I thought in my mind, was like a really wonderful black town and I could you know, find my people and begin to work. And that is actually true. Like the black community in DC and I got there, I will forever be indebted and grateful for the way that they um, told me the ropes, introduced me to people, like told me this thing is opening or this thing is opening or hey, I got this audition and like I would just show up and just sneak in to openings parties and introduce myself to people or I would show up to an audition and be like, oh, I'm not on the list, but if anyone doesn't come, can I audition, mm -hmm. you know? And that was so distinctly related to that community that I found there of these extraordinary actors. Um, who were also limited to what they were able to do because DC wasn't willing to turn and face um, the ways in which they had romanticized New York, the ways in which um, you know, black bodies were only useful for the, the musical or for that, again, as I was saying, the February show or slot. And then they had their favorites. So then you had to then that, that bit of like, I think we as a black community in DC were always rooting for each other, so there wasn't any infighting around, oh my God, that person got the role again. But there really was, there really was this idea that there were like four black people who were constantly always working and other people, it was kind of tiered in that way, so it was really hard to get work. It's, yeah. it's funny to hear that and go, frustrating to, to think about it in a community that large. You know, it's funny, I think about being a member of a theater company and thinking, oh, well, certain people work all the time and the other people don't, and or you're in a university. But when you're in a city the size of D.C., yeah. you're hoping there's opportunity. Yeah. You know, it's not get to that narrow focus. Um, oh, but when you went back to D.C., was it, did it feel, you're there. You're, yeah. <laughs> you're there. You've been there for a little while. Yeah. Um, does, it, does it feel like a home where you can where you're building an artist, where you're being able to be an artist and you're being able to act and you're 
doing what you would like to be doing, maybe not at the rate that you want to be doing sure. it. Yeah, no. Um, I'm actually at the point, so I've been in D.C. for 10 years. Um, I started my family in D.C., and I'm at the point of really asking that question if this is where I want to stay. I'm also at a point where, like, in my career, this very strange thing has happened, right, which is um, I've published four articles um, in American Theater and in HowlRound, and um, I've, like, engaged in all of these anti-racist theater workshops across the country and also in the Internationally. U.K. Internationally? Yeah, also in the U.K., right? So, like... Um, that uh, is exploding. And the institutions in which I'm um, being granted access, I'm like doing these air quotes or whatever that your listeners can't see, um, has been quite interesting. And I, I set an intention for myself this year to show up for my community in DC more because I'm just constantly traveling, so I'm, I'm not really there. And so I've had the opportunity already in this year to work twice with, um, some DC organizations in terms of um, doing anti-racist theater. But largely, I'm just ignored, right, in terms of these institutions that are quote unquote doing the work, right? Um, I will speak to, like, Wooly Mammoth is doing an incredible job under uh, the direction of Maria Goyanes of, like, just naming the fact that they want to be radically inclusive and they're they're doing that work. And Maria and I both did um, an art equity training together in the same year, and so, like, I feel like Wooly is the only theater that I exclude from this other blanket of what I'm talking about because she's operating from a very strong analysis and then that's turning into practice and policy and um, is really evident in this season um, that I've been able to go to, right? But these other institutions, there are so many things that they're like, haven't turned to face. Um, and one of them is the ways in which they are gatekeeping um, racist uh, policies and ideas, and um, how that's showing up on the actual staff. Can you can you do me a favor, just so that people who are listening can unpack that? When you say uh, they they're practicing the racist racist practices mm -hmm. for gate, gatekeeping, yeah. right? What does that look? Because if you're unaware, yeah, you're not aware <laughs> of what it looks like. What does sure. that look like? So I guess if we're going to go there, I would say you know the definition that I use for racism is one that is um, within the anti-racist uh, movement, right? So these are like institutions like Race Forward or even Russell Jones Blind Spot that I'm familiar with, and that uh, the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. They say that racism is defined as racial prejudice plus societal power to reinforce and codify that prejudice on the entire society, right? So when I say racism, I'm talking about that. But when I say racist policies, I'm using Dr. Ibram X. Kennedy's definition of racist policies, right? Where he talks about regardless of intention, the um, inequitable outcomes is what we're looking at, right? And um, that becomes important for white directors being able to direct anything, right? Um, black directors being siloed into black stories, um, you know, Latinx directors being siloed into Latinx stories, and then like Asian directors being siloed into maybe Asian stories um, or black stories. So this like, how does that pattern continue to replicate itself? It also shows up in, I would say, the exploitation of community in the grants and the language that people use to get grants. It shows up in um, that season selection. It shows up in who's the senior management and staff. It shows up in the fact that um, the data supports that black, indigenous, and POC leaders, artistic leaders, 
inherit theaters that are um, financially in debt. Like that's how they get the theaters. We could see that played out at OSF with Nataki Garrett. We see that played out at. Um, that's funny. Uh, the one in uh, St. Paul. Yes. Yes. Right. So we see like this ruin is the way that. Uh, the global major majority, right, um, is what I'm referring to when I say black, indigenous, and POC bodies are the global majority, not minorities, um, come into power. And then they're not supported in that power. And then we can also see in some of these structures where when these bodies come into play, the executive leadership, like, leaves. You know? So then we, we have these people who, and I mean, I think that's great in some ways, but they're also gatekeepers of knowledge. So if they leave when the other leadership leaves, you're also taking knowledge around how things were done that could have been useful for that new leadership to be able to shape um, how they want to continue to do things, right? Yeah, no, and I see that in other organizations. And I, yeah, I ask about it because I think there are things, you, you're talking about it in a very high, it's, I think on a very high level of where the policies are in place. And I think the other minimal the frontline policies are, like you said, who's siloed to be able to direct what, who's siloed to be able to be cast where, and not even, I don't think the people, I, I don't think outside audience or even as I tend to this podcast is for early career artists or people on the journey thinking about like, you're not even aware of the opportunities you're not given or the opportunities you are given mm -hmm. that others aren't. Mm -hmm. Especially when you're starting out, you think you're not given any opportunities because every door seems so heavy and big and you don't, you know, you're in a college and you're trying to get a job, not yeah. to even realize that what isn't there. And um, so I think it, it, it is great that, I think the conversation right now that is making everyone, that's making people aware that it's happening is positive. And then the things that you said about the other next step of the conversation is intention doesn't, it's not as important. It's not important about what your intention is and what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, it's really great. Um, how are you able to do, and this may have, I may have already asked this, but with the, uh, advocacy work, mm -hmm. are you able to also pursue acting? I don't want to act. You don't? Yeah. Well, like That has changed. Well, except for James Imes, who I'm completely in love with. Like, James Imes, I would direct and or act, and that has become my new goal in life. Uh, anything that James puts out into the world. Um, I think he has such an incredibly clear and humorous um, experience that's showing up in his work. So I would act in James's stuff. But the other stuff that's asking me for things that are outside of my experience, I'm just not here for. I'm not here for the slave role. I ain't here for the maid role. I'm not here for the best friend role. Um, I'm not even necessarily here for a, a thinking like, oh, we're going to flip it all. We're going to be subversive and put a black body in this white role without any analysis around what that means, right? I'm not even here for that. So I think what I've done is actually um, taken my agency back and how I show up in the world and how I utilize my artistry. So um, I'm an incredible fucking actor, but I now don't put myself at the mercy of the industry to, to, to define that for myself. And so I do a lot more directing. And I also find in the directing that I'm able to utilize various practices that are counter to racist policies, right? Or the privileging of the intellect 
over the embodiment of the work. Cause I feel like a lot of American theater suffers from this like neck acting, like it's just, like <laughs> from here, there, it's something going on, but I'm not interested in like the rest of this other kind of stuff. So I'm trying to continue to experiment and push the boundaries around like, what does it mean to do embodied work that brings forth, as I was speaking earlier, the cultural context of everyone who's involved in telling a story, like how do we, how do we make that kind of space? How do we make that kind of container? And how do we make like exciting work, innovative work, visionary work based on these particular parameters? So my rubric is different. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. No, it's great. Well, I, I would like the full body to be, I'm a primarily director as well. I want the full body engaged too. Uh, and I think good actors it is. Um, but, but I'm interested in that. I, so I'm gonna take that misinterpreting the acting and going to directing. Are you directing, as, is it allowing you to direct and are you directing in, in, the, in the way that you want to be able to direct and the amount that you want to be direct? And one of the reasons I'm asking is because I think what a conversation we were having earlier of just you start to get known for advocacy work mm -hmm. and then it takes over and yeah. people start to define you one way or another and they, people want to figure, I, I have a couple of things. One is if you don't call yourself a director, then the world doesn't call you a director because you need to do it first. But the other thing is, I think there's, this is the thing I don't like the thing about for optimism mm -hmm. is that there's so many, they want to give so many opportunities. So they look for a way not to say yes to somebody like, oh, well, you're an advocate. So you, you're, you're good. You're good. You're busy. Great. Yeah. And then I can find an opportunity for, because there's only one opportunity yeah. and there's, you know, seven people in the room. Yeah. So let's figure out how I can not have to say yes to somebody. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes what I think happens. Yeah. So my question is, yeah. are you directing and, and are you getting a chance to do that? Yeah. Yeah. So I am, right? So I just um, directed a show at Catholic University and that opened in February, right? So I just did that. And then now I'm in this season right now of doing a lot of my anti-racist theater facilitation and workshops. What I will say about um, for early career artists, um, and someone said this to me that there's no ladder in our field, and I thought that that was like so brilliant that they framed it in that way, is to really push back against anyone who tells you that this is the way that you're going to get work. Mm -hmm. And again, no one told me this, but I thought to myself, oh, if I know a lot of artistic directors. I'll work as a director, right? Um, and if I was to pull out my cell phone right now, I could call or text like seven artistic directors of huge theaters, right? Um, I'm not talking about like um, <laughs> a little community theater, which I'm not doing the hierarchy. I'm just saying they're large, right? In terms of credibility and money. And they would text back, right? So that speaks to the relationship there. And I'm not working at those particular theaters. And the system itself is built up to exploit um, labor. So they, the, the system of artistic, um, artistic, um, uh, assistant director that asks people to like be of support or to sit there for free usually, or for like peanuts while someone else is quote unquote directing in order so that someone could see me in that role is one that doesn't take into consideration that you have all of these communities that simply don't have the wealth and I mean that in the largest sense, to be able to take on such free labor, 
right? And support themselves and survive. So even that system, or that system of going to the best schools, or that system of fellowships, right? These things that ask us, that tell us, that reinforce that our artistry should be free, or that we should value it less, um, are so many systems that are in play right now in the theater industrial complex that I think it makes it extremely difficult for global majority folks, again, black indigenous POC people, to even be uh, given the opportunities to direct and fail, right? So like right now I'm so um, over DC theater in a turn because I keep looking at these white directors who get chance after chance after chance to just make really crappy theater. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> staring at like a beige wall and watching it dry. There's no actual community. There's no rhythm to it. There's none of that. But because they're known or because their skin buys them uh, credibility, they keep taking these opportunities. And, and there's no awareness around the actual institutions to stretch beyond and to let other folks tell stories in a different way, even though we have the records to prove that those shows sell out, mm -hmm. make more money, bring in various audiences, like it just gets ignored. And that that is why my work is not equity, diversity, inclusion, and access. My work is unapologetically anti-racist theater because EDI or EDIA or IDEA or whatever acronym they're using doesn't allow people to turn and face racism. There's still like these little shadows that they can hide in and these policies that can continue to be pushed forward that make it so I don't get to work or make it so in order for me to work, I have to break off pieces of myself in order to be in the space. So the one thing that you said was like, the conversation is good. And I would say inherently that's a theory, but in practice the conversation isn't good because it's still asking black indigenous and POC people, like um, let's pretend this was Game of Thrones. I'll it's asking Game of Thrones. It's Game of Thrones. It's asking us to be the front line of defense, right? While someone, the white people get to be Jon Snow, um, thinking about, well, how am I going to be strategic or how am I going to do this stuff? But there's these front lines that are having to take in the emotional labor. They're having to take in the physical impact of those decisions that are getting made, right? So I'm saying we got to move past conversation to what's the visioning. And then as we are visioning, we have to change our rubrics of what makes someone credible. Right, um, And it shouldn't necessarily be the pipeline of who went to the most prestigious schools or who went to the best schools. Um, it should be looking at like, how are we in service to the community? And how are we upholding these ideas of harm, harm reduction, harm prevention, and relationship repair? You can do that. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm here um, for it. Thank you. Thank you for the audience. support. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love it, I love it. Um, no, I think it's great. It's actually, it, 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 I'm working on it. The, the farm was named after the farm system of baseball. And the thing you said about how, how we measure hierarchy of success or how we do that, yeah. the rubric, it's one of the things that I say is that I'm trying to create opportunities for people who don't necessarily have the pedigree for success, yeah. you know, and just trying to create, you know, great if I can, if that somebody through the program can get into one of those schools, that's great if from the opportunity of community and the work and the opportunities that were offered. Nothing wrong with those places, but that should not be the end result. That should not be the only final judge, and I agree. And how we, well, you, you, I'm like, I'm listening to so much and I'm going, there was something you said about how we judge who's worthy or judge talent. Mm -hmm. I forget which one you said, mm -hmm. but both, and I thought it's true because I think we start to, we don't look at the individual 
and it's it, and there are so many individuals who are great at what they're doing and working really hard and there's at a certain level and this other level gets passed by really quickly just by the three you know what letter of school they went to and or what they look like or how that happens mm -hmm. and uh, and I think finding it I want to say finding the opportunity, making sure that we change the rubric so that we're judging the individual or, or not judging, I don't even want to say that, that we're looking at the individual as what the individual is bringing. And also something that Christine was talking about earlier is that idea of advocating for yourself, of like knowing that this is an issue, right? Knowing that it's a, not knowing it's an issue is ridiculous, but knowing that it's an issue is knowing then how you have to advocate for yourself to make sure that you can be seen as you're an individual and what you're bringing. Yeah. I want to come back, uh, and I'm happy to talk about any of it, because then there's a part where I just sit back and I have nothing <laughs> to say, because I'm, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm trying to learn. I, I directed a show uh, called American Rookie, about an immigrant telling her story, Indian in America, and something you said about the, there's a line in the play that is white people can be so fucking average and it's like that's the frustration is they can get away with not having to be the best and uh and the conversation we had, had earlier today about if you are an underserved or unre underrepresented community you have to you better be prepared you better be the best and it's it's a comfort that others are not off that majority culture is not offered mm -hmm. you know they, they they're not pushed against that they can they can show up you know and uh, so it's good the conversation is great for that because i want there to be an awareness that it's true and want people to have a consciousness about it mm -hmm. and then i'm backing up to this question when you're directing at catholic university mm -hmm. all right how's that coming about that was horrible. It was so racist. Uh, I'm in the moment of like writing them a letter about um, just all the ways that racism shows up. And what becomes interesting in these institutions is a lot of the pushback comes and goes, oh, well, we're under-resourced. That's why, right? So they, they push it or they hide it to um, being unorganized. And it's like, it's not unorganized. It is actual systems, right, of oppression that you all are leaning forward and practicing. Um, and then this particular instance, they, they produced a play by a black playwright um, who had, who was, uh, this is their last year, so it was their MFA thesis show, and it was a full production. And this person had written a show with 10 black characters in it at a university whose department did not have nearly enough people to cast in that show. And they knew that way ahead of time, and they did absolutely no work to ensure that that community, one, that they had funding to pay black actors uh, a living wage and rate to come out and be in that show and put it on. Um, so the audition was largely like not attended well. Um, I had to hold multiple auditions to get who I needed. Like even down to the last week before the show, I was still casting people, right? There's like this lack of awareness around um, when you've so centered whiteness what it takes to produce people of color and then all of the practices of unwelcome just that they wouldn't even begin to be aware of right that come into the play into the space and so this is around organizational culture so catholic is a no thank you and i would say to <laughs> <laughs> well not to no thank you but um, just to go to the the experience is one thing but how did it how did it happen how did they call you to say or 
the playwright, the playwright, the playwright had to also become like the producer. If it wasn't for the playwright stepping up and filling in all of the ways in which they were lacking, that show would have never even got to where it got to. So I want to name that, that that person who was a student had to then take on being a producer um, and doing all of the that extra additional work on top of getting through that. Right. That's exactly that's exactly right. Right. So. One of the things that I would also say to early career artists is like, as we are like, and I'm definitely including myself, not as an early career artist, but someone who was at that point, as we are like struggling and, and, and gripping and working so, so hard to get into these institutions, we get into these institutions and find out, you know, oh no, this is whole other level of microaggressions that I have to deal with. This is whole other level of culture of silence that I have to deal with because the theater is based on relationships, right? Sorry about that. I'm like hitting your microphone. So... If I dare to say something and push against your thinking, and the theater as general also tends to think that it's very liberal, right? If I push against that and tell you the ways that you've harmed me, I'm now, as you were saying earlier, setting myself up to weed myself out of consideration of being in the next production. So a lot of people choose silence, right? These articles that I wrote, um, when I was interviewing artists from all over, right? There were so many people who were like, I just don't feel comfortable with you using my name or I've worked really hard to get to where I'm at and I just can't risk the fact that someone would feel injured and then would weaponize that against me. And that's another huge thing that we have to realize in the theater industrial complex is that the opportunities are so little, but they're also connected to my money. They're connected to the, the very thing that helps me pay the bills, right? So we're asking people to make serious decisions around how they show up in this art. And we're asking them to do things like get training and invest in training and get certified, right? So even if you don't do the college pipeline, you still need cert certification in something which costs money. Some of these programs are outrageous, 6,000, $7,000, $8,000 to go for the summer, right? Mm -hmm. This conference with all the resources that it has is incredible, but you're asking people to take off of work, to fund a hotel, to fund the airplane or the car, right? Uh, to hire the coach to do the auditioning with, for the headshots, for the portfolios. Like this, this is dollars and cents, right? That um, it boils down to. And we're not visioning how can we do it differently. We're simply showing up, getting on the escalator and letting it take us where we are or wherever we may be going. And where that is, is uh, just a racist society. So we got to turn around. We got to do a little effort. We got to do a little work yeah. um, and get off that escalator, right? I agree. And I also want to, it's funny, I'm not going to push back my thought on, a, on the awareness of it is going, yeah, I think the opportunity, I think what Southeast Theater Conference is doing where, where we're having the conversation, I don't know if the conference will be going on when its podcast is released. Yeah. But I think, I think they set up something for years of opportunities, and I think now it's like looking at it. But one thing when you said all that, I go, yeah, it's figuring out how the schools, I think they're creating something that's great. And it's like, how do the schools and the organization help the students to then take advantage of those opportunities so that it's not cost prohibitive? Because mm -hmm. you're right, like all of a sudden, it is who can take off five, forget the, the work, because I think the schools support it, you know? I mean, for us to come, it's different because mm -hmm. we come because we're leaving our homes to come. But the schools is part of their program. But it's like, what can the schools do and the conference itself do to help make sure the students are 
able to get here, to able to meet the people who can then hopefully employ them. And when you said hire the coaches, I'm like, I'm hoping these under, I'm hoping these undergraduate <laughs> students are being prepared at no extra cost by their faculty to audition. But if that's not happening, that has to happen because you're right. Because I, you know, you can always hear about the kid who's like, oh, I, you know, I, I got my headshot done by this professional, whatever. And I'm like, right, you're 22. I yeah. just need, you know, just come in the room and be good. Yeah, but yeah. I would say that's the additional cost. Like that's the analysis, right? So uh, students of color who are at these institutions that uh, faculty is all white, those faculty generally are sorely lacking in the ability to ask those folks to bring forth their cultural context. So even when they are working with these students, they are engaged in active cultural erasure mm -hmm. to prepare them to put on this canon or whatever the heck the thing is asking them to do. So a student who might have some awareness around that would hire someone who looks like them or um, has an analysis around racism who can offer them a more robust experience. So here we go, more cost, right? So it's not often as simple as uh, the theory or the belief or the utopia that the faculty is actually able to provide them with what they need. The faculty, in many cases, where I go, all around the country or whatever, um, are harming these students. And the students will come up after a workshop and be like, oh my god, my faculty said this to me or they said that to me. <laughs> you know, there's all these whispers around the microaggression even in that, right? And how their bias goes unchecked and how their prejudice goes unchecked. And because of power structures, what is the student supposed to say to that? Plus, why should they? My dollar is the same as the white student's dollar. Why do I have to sit here and then educate you about the ways in which you're stepping on my spirit? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't know, and I think about it, and I think, uh, and I, and I think, it's it's interesting because when you said walk backwards, and I'm like re re, I think it it is re-examining a model and unpacking a model and 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 breaking a model and trying to figure out a new system. <laughs> but I also I also have to just be honest and say I have this impact in, impulse when I say. Yeah, when I'm thinking about it, going okay, I don't, I have, I don't think I've ever. And it's, you know, it's funny. I wanted to make a point, but I'm like, I haven't. You know, it's like okay, then if somebody from a different culture is teaching, can they teach to all cultures? Is that possible? Because I'm thinking of a friend of mine who I'm working with right now, who's a great acting teacher. I think he's pretty, I think he's pretty culturally aware, and I don't think, I don't think that's an issue. But I'm like, oh, does every student? need somebody from their culture to do to be in the room for them or is there a way to how do we serve everybody that's mm -hmm. a, it's just a, how do we without yeah you know because if i go to the university and you're teaching mm -hmm. then i'm like you don't you don't have the experience that i've had mm -hmm. so i'm you know and i'm looking at it from that lens going how do i make sure that these two students and these two students are also being served without having to have their own teacher. Yeah, but let's see, white people don't have to answer that question. You know what I mean? So that exact, We don't have, you mean we're not confronted by it? No, I'm saying they literally don't have to a answer that question that you're posing to me. And so I find that too in my work, right? That in terms of anti-racist, that some of the questions that I, and I'm not, and this is a disruption of the binary. It's not good, bad. I'm just saying this is what it is. Like this is the experience, right? That white people are never asked, do you have the authority? to teach everybody, it's just assumed that they do, right? But then when we say, well, let's put a, a global majority person in the room, but do you, 
would they have it? Do we, do we have to begin to ask these questions? And what I'm saying is with an anti-racist theater ethos, anyone can collaborate and work with anyone as long as they have a sharp analysis around the fact that racism is baseline. Racism is not a if it's going to happen, it is, it is happening. And so how do we counter the effects of this universality, right? Too many of the faculty members in these departments are disproportionately white. Too many of the students are disproportionately white, right? And it isn't, it isn't a pipeline issue. Like one of the things that you talked about, go ahead. No, it is not a pipeline yeah, issue. Yeah. It is, it's, uh, I, it's, it's one of these things where I wanna go like, I can see that change is happening, but I'm going, I did this college collab production and we've done uh, the Farms Commission seven female playwrights and because when the program started, there was the issue that female playwrights were not getting produced and, and there was the study done on that. And the first two years of the program, mm -hmm. three colleges, right? So six colleges, all male directors. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and then finally, and it was interesting, I, I now get to talk about this experience of, and you know, I would go to town, I'm the artistic director, the playwright would come into town and they'd do two days of rehearsal with the school. So they'd know the, the director and they'd had the, the uh, time with the ensemble. You guys had that experience with Kimberly. And, um, and then I came and, uh, and I would, and the artistic director, so I come when the show is happening and I meet people and we'd go to dinner every time, right? And it was, it was great for me because, to have the experience of the first time there was a female director working with a female playwright. Because mm -hmm. we went to dinner and all of a sudden I went, oh, these, the, chemi the chemistry between the two people was so much different. Mm -hmm. And it was simple, and it was a different energy for me and I went, oh, that is what it's like when that playwright, the other two years is having dinner with that male director. Not that there was any collaboration problem, there was no collaboration problem, yeah. but there was just a different understanding of each other and I thought, oh, that has to be, that it's not a pipeline issue, it has to be a balance and I know people are, in theory, because I liked what you said about conversation, it has to be about numbers. It seems like action is being taken. I'm not sure we're breaking the system, uh, but it is not getting anywhere near balanced because I go to the schools and the thing I said about the playwriting program is not only can I not account, guarantee that there's enough representation for a person of color to be, their story to be fully told on the campus like the experience you were having mm -hmm. at Catholic is they don't have the advocacy on the faculty mm -hmm. to be able to even figure out how to address that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm just bringing all that to say I agree. Yeah. And it's not a pipeline issue. That, that's also been proven. That was the thing that I liked about, you know, Kilroy's is the Kilroy list with the playwrights is yeah. doing that. It's like it's not a pipeline issue. Here's the most unproduced plays mm -hmm. by women. Go mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you think there aren't any, here you go. Yeah. One of my four questions, what do you carry with you now that you didn't when you were starting, when you were going out into the world? Oh yeah, the belief that I am enough. I am enough. I say that all the time. I am enough. I think this industry taught me to say I'm not enough. I'm lacking. There, there's more that I have to do. Um, and whether that was around losing weight or um, my hair, the choices of my hair, right? Um, or whether or not I got tattoos or whether or not I chose to have children. 
Like there was always these things that had to be hidden, right? My sound, my quality, uh, my energy, my light. Um, so the thing that I carry with me um, is I am enough and I actually believe it, right? Um, and that also makes way for the power of no thank you. Some of these places that I thought that I was, I just had to be in. Um, actually, I have a choice versus um, the desperation of like, take me, take me, take me. Here are all the ways that I'm worthy. Um, I can actually have an analysis around, oh man, if I got into that space, the emotional labor to deal with um, being mistaken for another person of color, the emotional labor of being um, policed by the security, um, having to show my credentials, or um, the uh, am I here as a director? What am I here for? Like all of that, that I have to deal with on top of then trying to be creative, um, isn't worth the the credit on my resume, right? Also, just I am enough allows me to buck against the myth of scarcity, that there isn't enough room for me in this um, huge multi-billion dollar complex, right? Because there is. Um, and those places, even though they are not as heavily funded um, as institutions that are in many ways overfunded and need to practice living amends by figuring out different ways to um, be in relationship to communities, those are spaces where I can feel safe. So like I directed for the St. Louis Black Rep last season, and it was incredible to be uh, in space with Ron Himes. It was incredible to be um, just there looking at their history and their legacy of their work, right? Um, and to be in relationship with them. So I'm super grateful um, that Ron gave me that opportunity to be there, right? And to work uh, in that capacity. So yeah, I am enough. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think that is a great, I think that, you know, is gonna, the next question I have is about advice mm -hmm. to the early career artist or, or anyone starting out on the journey. But I also think big, a major thing is to, I am enough is something to carry with you. <laughs> Don't wait to yeah. carry that with you because yeah. it's interesting because I've had other people say that, but they say it in a different frame. They say it just even in their acting. You know, just you don't try to do too much. You know, like you are enough, you are interesting, you are, and you are enough, you're good enough for that work. And I think it resonates in all the ways you said it and in that simple, just accepting that you are enough, you're yeah. good, you're interesting, yeah. Yeah. you're valuable. Mm -hmm. I like that you put it in scarcity too, because I thought, sure, I am enough, but I would like, I want, I also need enough. Mm -hmm. I'm enough and I'm worthy not to be, not to think that, I don't want to think I'm enough, like, small. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm good. You know, more like, no, I'm, you're, I'm worthwhile. I'm worth it. You yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come. Yeah. And uh, on that, do you have advice that you would share with anyone beginning this career? And those words were great enough. They don't <laughs> have to be, you are enough. <laughs> they don't have to be different than um, that. I guess my advice for anybody um, uh, in this career is really about establishing what your boundaries are because this industry is notorious for um, disregarding people's boundaries. And so really being clear for yourself, right, around how you wanna do the work, what that looks like for you, what you're willing to do 
uh, and what you're not willing to do. And, and this is, for me, much, it's beyond consent. It's around the boundary of pay. It's around the boundary of how people will speak to you um, and how they approach you in your artistry. It's around the boundaries of um, people utilizing your um, artistic capital for their gain. So I'm talking about, I've been in situations where people are taking photographs of me and they haven't asked, right? And that's being put up on their whatever. Um, I've been in situations where I'm sharing something and people don't cite the fact that they got that from me, right? So it's like, what are your own personal boundaries around the work that you want to do and how you want to show up for the work? And then you got to stick to those things, right? You have to be willing to say no, thank you. And that, and that, there's a saying around your your no makes room for your yes, and I find that for myself to be completely true. That like when I say no to something, then I'm saying yes to myself. And I think we live in a, a society period outside of the theater industrial complex, but also in it, that doesn't value, right, my ability to say yes to myself because that's not quote unquote producing some type of monetary product, right? But it is producing self-care. And my self-care is community care because now I can show up for my community, right? Um, and do the work that I feel called to do, my heart's work. So yeah, boundaries, know them. <laughs> know them and use them. And know them and use them, yeah. Right, right, because we can know them and let people go across. Yeah, know um, them and use them, please. I'm gonna, this conversation is great, and I'm gonna take advantage of the fact that we're at a, we have a live audience. Mm -hmm. You do not have to feel any pressure because we're an intimate audience, but, if you wanted to say anything or ask a question, I'm not fancy like the main room with the big stand, but there's a <laughs> microphone there. And if you want to ask, I just ask you to talk into it, not that we need it, but just so you can be heard when we record. Hello, um, I'm Michaela Fuller. I'm from Furman University. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask, what advice would you give to young students of color who want to facilitate anti-racist theater at their own institutions, but maybe unsure about that sort of power that they have. Ooh. So part of my work in terms of anti-racist theater is um, telling people that you are the expert of your community. So it's really, uh, I think, arrogant and hard for me to like talk about how to facilitate for your community because one, I don't know the people who are there. I don't know the harm might, that would come for particular actions. But I would say it's been so useful to just um, meet. So what does it look like to meet? And then what does it look like to define what that meeting is? Like, oh, we're coming to meet and discuss a specific thing and actionize around it. So it's so important to also include visioning. And I'm gonna share um, a piece of wisdom that was shared with me which is um, action without pause is aggression, right? And so you're having this meeting, you're meeting, there needs to be also this thinking around how are we pausing to make sure that these are the ways that we wanna move forward. And that pausing without action, they said was ignorance or laziness. And so um, sometimes I think in this work there can be a lot of um, things that first have to be acknowledged. It's like we come together and then we talk about all the ways that we've been holding all of this trauma and these microaggressions and we tend to vomit all over each other, which is useful, but for a certain amount of time. So in terms of like actioning and advocating, 
know your community, knows what's the safest way for you to negotiate and navigate that. There's always this complex web around how you want to be strategic and moving, and then uh, have an analysis around what positional power or authority that you have that the institution tells you that you don't. That can help, and, and then bring in um, allies, bring in white allies after you all have a plan and say, this is what we need you to do. This is you living amends, right? And this is what we're asking you to do. I hope that's helpful. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay, so my name is Christine Bruno. Uh, I am an actor and a disability inclusion consultant and a teaching artist uh, based in New York. Mm -hmm. I'm here as part of the uh, SETC's EDI series. Mm -hmm. So my question is uh, about intersectionality. Yeah. I've, I've read uh, your piece in uh, American Theater Magazine, which I loved. Uh, but one of the things that I found missing was any sort of acknowledgement of ableism mm -hmm. and disabled people in our uh, theatrical industrial complex. Right? Yeah. And, and uh, you probably saw this entire hour I've been nodding at everything you said because it applies to, I think, all underrepresented communities, not just my own and your own. And I, I wonder how we can in solidarity with with all of our underrepresented colleagues from the trans community as well how how do we how can we be the most effective allies to one another with the understanding that a lot of what you're saying also applies to other underrepresented communities yeah thank you for that um, so i want to say um, anti-racist work for me is anti-oppression work uh, and I always quote Sister Angela Davis on that, right? It says that that comes from there. Um, in terms of the work that I do, with anti-racist work being anti-oppression work, I open myself up to the learnings and the things that I don't know, but I also stay in my lane in terms of making either space or using um, whatever platform or positionality that I may have to make space for people who are authorities on particular topics. So, and I do that as a radical act of burn, like I can't burn myself out. And so, um, as my work continues to become more dynamic and I continue to be able to hold space and be in relationship with people, I continue to speak up more. So uh, the first article that I ever was ever published in American Theater came out in 2018. I wrote it in 2017. And since then, you know, I've done four articles, with the last ones being um, uh, published last uh, year, at the end of the year, right? But in any space that I'm ever in, I always bring up access needs. I always talk about that being a spectrum. I always talk about um, any place where I'm privileged and I look at it's all able-bodied people. I always ask, have we asked this question of why everyone here is able-bodied? Um, so I do use my positional power to speak up about, um, for me, like the very basic and baseline um, issues around disability justice and what that looks like in the theater industrial complex. And the fact that our programs are not set up in any way to um, invite or have a sense of welcoming for that issue nor are the faculty able to deal with any of those issues, right? Um, and so, so yeah, so thank you for calling me in. Thank you for putting that into the space. 
and the, into bringing in terms that intersectionality. Yeah, that is the work. The work is we got to look to the left and the right, and we got to go, oh, yeah, like, I don't mm -hmm. see, I don't see us, you know, doing whatever this thing is, um, honoring the land. I don't see us, you know, dealing with, you know, all, a, a whole plethora of issues, I think, in terms of, like, the sexism and in terms of the paternalism and in terms of the patriarchy um, and in terms of disability justice. How are we turning to face that? And then the fact um, that a lot of the stuff that we do is kind of, like, I think in the industry is low-hanging fruit, yeah. so people will only address like, oh, we're gonna bring someone in to sign this show. And, and no analysis around many people in the deaf community don't see themselves as disabled. Yeah. So, so now we're not doing the same thing, you, right. you know what I mean? But it seems like, oh, well, but that's the way I could you know, right. address that thing. Right. Yeah, and that's why I tell people to be experts of their own communities, right? And through opening that disability justice, it makes room for the layering of, oh, what happens when we put racism on that? What happens when we put, you know, consent? What happens when we put any of these kinds of things? Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for your work. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah, you. Emotional, physical, all of that. Yeah, your labor. Hi, my name is Nicole Dietze. I'm an independent, Hi, yeah. <laughs> independent artist, actor, and um, teaching artist right now based out of Denver. Mm -hmm. And when I'm teaching... I see a lot of code switching in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I recognize in students that they're bringing up onto the studio floor to show me, I think because of how they read me, mm -hmm. eth ethnically or culturally. Mm -hmm. And I'm usually able to address that with them, but not verbally addressing it, like pointing right at it, mm -hmm. but instead finding a way through noticing where they're holding tension to kind of help them walk them back towards their authentic body. Yeah. But I wonder if sometimes I'm not teaching in the best way if I am not able to articulate to them that, that I'm afraid of the racism being obvious mm -hmm. by articulating it and then pushing that student away. Mm -hmm. Or is there a way that it's more useful to address it with them verbally so that they see that I know something or that I, I don't want racism affecting them in that way in the classroom? Yeah. Thank you for your question. It's complex as you are sorting out and figuring out for yourself, yeah. right? Um, I'll just speak from the eye. For me, I always lead with it. So people, like, I introduce myself, and then whatever capacity I'm showing up, I say, I practice anti-racist theater. And what that means is this, right? And I give the definition for anti-racist theater, and then I say, you know, I'm committed to harm reduction, harm um, prevention, and relational repair, and how that shows up. And then I model, right, um, as I was saying with Christine, access needs, and asking people to put those into the space if necessary. Maybe they have them and they don't want to share, and that's absolutely fine too. Um, I model honoring the land. And that becomes really important because I, and I'm gonna bring Adrian Marie Brown into this uh, podcast, into the space, and say, Adrian Marie Brown saying you have to move at the speed of trust. Mm -hmm. So even though you state these things to people, people are not just going to inherently trust you because they have all of these experiences that say this could end in a myriad of ways, but all of them end with me having to hold the harm, me having to no negotiate and navigate it and not in community as an individual, right? So you're going to have to keep doing it over and over and over again, and people will... Um, 
unfold to that as they they will but it has to be written it has to be spoken it has to be said in the space like i use session agreements and i've i've heard recently that these are being weaponized against people and so i think it's like really important to say for me session agreements are around having a shared expectation of how people are going to show up in the space together and so the definitions have to be made together um and that safety is subjective, so I can't make a safe space for you or anybody else that's in this room. Y'all have to decide through your boundaries what your safety is, but I can make a space where we are all holding each other accountable and have pathways to attending to the impact of our behavior. So when harm happens, right, you have a pathway back because you're building a relationship with that person around how you can attend to your impact. And for me, it's so, dis it's so uncomfortable when I have to attend to the impact. Right? Um, and that's where the pauses are useful. So I would just really offer for people when you see something and you think, oh, I know what that is, that if you created a container when they first met you and you continue to hold that space for people, that you are allowing a pathway for them to show up in the fullness of their selves because that's a radical act. We live in a society and in an industry that's not asking for that. So you have to understand that there would be some like, you know, I don't, I don't, where is this going? How do I get there with you? And, and everybody ain't gonna believe you. And you gotta be okay with that too. That some people are just gonna see you lacking and you have to hold your own truth around, I'm showing up and doing the best that I can and I'm sleeping well at night knowing that I'm, I'm doing that, right? Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's useful or not to you. Thank you. Yeah. Yay, namesake, Nicole, Nicole. <laughs> Nicole, Nicole. <laughs> that's right. Um, and Nicole, thank you. Yay, thank yeah, you so much. This is so great. It was uh, an incredible conversation, and that's all I got. That's okay. You thank good? you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thanks. That was excellent. Thanks, uh, Nicole. And also, um, I want to say one of the things that was special about that is we're at the Southeast Theater Conference and, you know, it was going to be, the interviews were going to be in front of a live audience and we had three interviews and scheduled. And I, this was the only one with a live audience. So when I, it's interesting to me that I was in the middle of the interview, as I shared at the beginning, I was thinking like, oh, this doesn't, you know, how does this directly correlate with the early career artist? And you know, her, the advice, I, I always, I love the advice that you are enough. I always love that. And especially the way that Nicole talks about it in a much more profound way than just about your artistry, but your identity and who you are and you, you, you who, what you bring is rich and, and enough. But it was also the only, of the three scheduled, it was the only interview that brought an audience and people wanted to hear. And, you know, we had Ashley Latimer was a Tony Award-winning Broadway producer whose keynote was sold out, but it was just her and I in the room when we talked. So obviously this is a topic and an issue that people are really invested in. And it was nice. It was, uh, that's why we got to have the three questions at the end from the audience members. It was really, really grateful and, it, and a lot to think about. And as I'm wrapping this up, I, I, I wanted to, say how glad I am that the Southeast Theater Conference partners with the farm to allow us to do the, the podcasting at the conference. And, and it connected us with people like Nicole that I never 
I wouldn't have met. She's in DC. I mean, I was doing all these interviews face to face. Now that we're in the pandemic, we're doing them over Zoom. And, you know, I get to talk to, I'm going to talk to a couple, you know, I talked with Rajiv, who's in Cleveland. I'm going to, you'll hear Carrie O'Malley, uh, who's in LA, and Michael Stuhlbarg's in New Orleans. And, you know, get to talk to them because of the Zoom thing. But Southeast Theater Conference connected me to, to people I wouldn't have gotten to meet. And it was a really, really great conversation. Grateful to have it. And as I'm thinking about moving forward and, you know, what does the early career artist need? I think about one of the things we need to think about is in our training is to make sure everybody's voice is valued and that they feel fully recognized and seen for who they are and are able to share that and to grow and nurture that as, you know, themselves fully and, you know, creating an environment for that. But then as we move professionally, we have to make sure that there are, that there's a support and an opportunity for the, for that, those voices to be heard because all of it, you know, and that there's, and I like that we make space for it and we make space for everyone. And before I keep talking about things that, that, you know, are beyond me uh, and my ability. I just, uh, it was, it was really good to think about the idea of creating space. And I like, I like that. That's, that's, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to create space and I want to, I want us all to recognize that we're enough. And I want to, when I think about at this point, you know, I think about, you know, who's, just the idea of having to share and build a career and be creative on the internet right now for theater. And it's hard to reach new and different communities because you're not able to go outside and meet people face to face is that we keep doing it and that we try to pay attention to seeing people as individuals and the artistry and the value that they bring and to share ourselves as individuals, not not to feel a need to be more than who we are and where, and to be in a different place than where we are. Because, you know, right now we're all in a pandemic and we're all shut down and we're all social distancing, but we're also, we're all in a different place. Some people have the means to relax. Some people are trying to keep food on their table. Some people are, have a megaphone of social media that gets them a million viewers. And some people are live streaming something that's getting them six and all of that's okay. You know, just to, be true to who you are and be aware that you're enough and, you know, and keep sharing with each other about how you're doing. And, and I'm, I'm going to wrap it back to the, what I was saying about the conversation as we're looking forward of where this is going to go and where theater is going to go and the training is going to go to keep imagining, keep thinking about how you want to reimagine it. You know, we all want to go back to normal, but also what a great opportunity to change it and make it better. And that's what theater people do better than anything is we imagine. And then we make the imaginal, the imagined practical and we create it and we make it a new reality. And so I look forward to seeing what you're creating. And with that, we're out. 